This Star News Media Podcast is presented by North Chase Family Dentistry. Open evenings, Saturdays, and they probably take your insurance. Visit them on the web at NorthChaseFamilyDentistry.com. And by Tidewater Heating and Air Conditioning, servicing all major brands with highly trained technicians who are the best the industry has to offer, serving Wilmington and surrounding communities for more than 40 years. Learn more at TidewaterAC.com. And by Cape Fear Pharmacy, a local independent pharmacy providing health care and compounding services customized to meet our patients' needs. Visit CapeFearPharmacy.com today and let us take care of you. On the morning of November 11, 1898, the sun rose over Wilmington and shone a light on a city in shock. The day prior, a mob of white supremacists had swept through the black neighborhood on Wilmington's north side and opened fire. It was the culmination of a massive campaign by the state's white Democrats, started earlier in the year to regain political control and put the black community, which had found opportunity in Wilmington after the Civil War, in its perceived place. The city was plunged into chaos, first with the burning of the black-run newspaper The Daily Record, and then the patrols of armed men, who in their wake left bodies in the streets. The total death toll of November 10, 1898, is still unknown, with some historians putting it closer to 40 or 50. Others see it much higher. And of those, only a handful of victims were ever identified. By the end of the day, black men, women, and children had fled their homes to take refuge in Wilmington cemeteries and swamps on what would prove to be a bitterly cold night. More black residents and some of those white residents that had supported them were banished from the city that afternoon and in the days that followed. Finally, the powerful white men who orchestrated the violence behind the scenes forced the resignations of the mayor, the board of aldermen, and the police chief, the final piece in their violent political coup d'etat. On the morning of November 11, 1898, the sun rose over Wilmington and shone a light on a city in shock. But it was only the beginning of the aftershocks that would be felt for decades to come. This is Cape Fear Unearthed the podcast exploring the persisting legends, historical oddities, and landmark stories of southeastern North Carolina. As always, I'm your host, Hunter Ingram, and I'm a reporter with the Star News here in Wilmington. Today, we are wrapping up our special series, Unearthing 1898, with an episode that will investigate the aftermath of the events of November 10th, 1898 when a mob of white supremacists unleashed intimidation, threats, and gunfire on the black residents of Wilmington. 
What happened to those black residents who fled or were banished from the city? Many of them spending days hidden in fear in Wilmington swamps and cemeteries. How did the recently overthrown local government respond to the day of violence? And how did it attempt to restore order in an unruly city? And most importantly in this episode, we're going to look at how the events of 1898 led to widespread legislative, cultural, economic, and societal changes that persisted throughout North Carolina for decades and are still being dealt with today. As I previously stated, this is not an easy story to tell, but it is one that this podcast would be incomplete without. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation between myself and three distinguished guests who have all spent exhaustive time researching this story and its impact in Wilmington and beyond. So sit back and settle in as we conclude our look at the Wilmington Massacre with our third and final episode of Unearthing 1898. Joining me for our third and final discussion on 1898 in this Unearthing 1898 series are three very special guests, the first of which you will recognize from our first two episodes. Leray Umfleet is back with us to round out this discussion. Leray, as just a refresher, was the lead researcher on the state's commission on 1898 uh, and with her research team uh, published a 500-page report, and then she took her research and published her own book titled A Day of Blood, which you can buy now. Lorray, thank you for coming back and uh, and continuing this conversation with us. Glad to be here. Thank you. And then joining Lorray and I for this discussion are two first-time guests to Cape Fear on Earth. Uh, first, we have Cynthia Brown. She is the historian for St. Stephen's AME Church in Wilmington. She is a community activist, a, a historian in many other uh, respects, and uh, and a beloved community member from what I hear from all the people referenced you and uh, and sent you in my direction. So, Cynthia, thank you so much for being here. And thank you for inviting me as well. <laughs> and then we also have David Soselski. And David is an author. He's a historian. And he co-wrote the book Democracy Betrayed about the 1898 coup uh, and, and race riot. So, David, thank you so much for coming on and joining us as well. It's great to be here with you. It's great to be here with Lareg and Cynthia, too. Well, with that, we are going to start our final discussion on 1898. Larray, I want to start out with you. Uh, in our second episode, we ended by looking at what Wilmington looked like as the sunset on November 10th, 1898. And so I want to pick up with you and talk about what Wilmington residents woke up to on November 11th. Was there any idea inside the town that it was now a changed city? Oh, yes. The white community had been on edge and the black community was in shock and the white community had been doing more patrols still so everyone was overly exhausted and there on the morning of the 11th there was the beginning of the banishment campaign and overnight on the night of the 10th there had been a lynch mob that had shown up at the city jail to pull out some of the men who had been marked for banishment and lynch them. That had been prevented by the white leadership, but 
it was still a very scary place to be in Wilmington if you were African American on the night of November 11th into the night of November 10th into the 11th. And in the morning of the 11th, parades of our men began marching across the city to reinforce their place, demonstrate martial law, and that control of the city was firmly in the hands of white people. And the banished men were then later marched to the train station. They had been marched all over town the day before, right after they were taken into custody. And they were potentially beaten up, harassed. And on the way to the train, one was almost lynched that morning. But he cried the cry of the Masons in distress. And other Masons stepped out of the crowd and protected him and said, this man won't die today. The black population that had fled the city stayed away, and many of those folks never returned to their homes and families. So it was a tragic situation day one post-November 10th and was an indicator of what was to come. And, and speaking about those black residents that did flee the city, either of their own accord, fearing for their safety or, you know, threatened and, and told to leave town, That's where I want to bring you into the conversation, Cynthia, because you have a great grandmother who was living in Wilmington at the time and you know her story. And I was hoping that you would share it with us about what her experience was growing up in Wilmington and uh, what happened to her on November 10th, 1898. And and as she fled the city. Well, thank you again, Hunter. And yes, I uh, my paternal great grandmother lived with her family here in Wilmington at the time. And they were a relatively poor family. They, they were working class. Her mother, Mary Elizabeth Howe, worked from home uh, and took care of the children. Her father, William C. Howe, was what was referred to as a cooper. He worked on the waterfront uh, and he made barrels. Um, they lived in the Brooklyn community. However, there's another side of the family that lived on the south side of town and they also were direct descendants of Alfred Howe, the patriarch of the family. But back to my great-grandmother, Athalia. Yes, she witnessed uh, someone being pulled from his home on the morning of the event, I'll call it, and she ran back in. But what she told her daughters and uh, her grandchildren was that she witnessed one man being shot as he left his home to go to work. And her mother, out of fear, pulled her back in and other women in the community apparently just stayed in. They had no telephones. They didn't know exactly what was going on. But when they looked out and could see that the men on horseback, the red shirts, as we have referred to them now, passed on, her mother, Mary Elizabeth, took her and her sister Augusta, and they also got other children from the neighborhood and they ran to St. Stephen. St. Stephen AME Church was the family church. Um, There were other Howes who were members of St. Mark, but uh, the Episcopalian, Black Episcopalian Church, but they went to St. Stephen. They did not go into St. Stephen because they saw men confronting the pastor and didn't know what was happening. I later learned through my father and through LeRae's report, what was happening because the church was challenged. And I guess it was believed that weapons were in the church, but there were not any found. 
But that said, my my great grandmother said Athelia, and I call her Athelia if I slip sometimes and say Athelia. Uh, they ran. They ran between the houses into what was then a wooded, more wooded area. And they made their way to Pine Forest Cemetery. And that's where they stayed. In her case, I've been told for a few days. I've also been told, as it's been passed down in our family's oral history, that Reverend Christmas, I believe it was, with Central Baptist Church would send word periodically or food to the cemetery for the women and children that he knew were hiding out there. I believe his wife may have been out there, I'm not sure. But it was a very um, frightening ordeal for her as a teenager. She remembered it all of her life. On her deathbed, and I'm going to keep my composure, (laughs) but on her deathbed, when she was dying, um, my mother and father had divorced and um, my mother took us to Pennsylvania to visit with her. My mother was extremely close to my father's uh, mother as well as her mother and the entire family. And so she took us to Pennsylvania to see Athelia. And I didn't know what was occurring. I was just a young child, but I recall very vividly her pulling on my arm and and rattling a lot about not letting them do that to me. And if it happens, run. And I remember very vividly my father being very, um, I won't say angry, but anxious, almost angry. And he almost ordered my mother to remove me and my brother from her room. It was later in life when my father explained to me what she was trying to say. And my, my great-grandmother at that time had developed some, what we believe was some form of dementia. But uh, we also believe that she was having memories of what she experienced because in decades prior to that time, she had already passed the stories along and told her grandchildren and her children about it. So that's what happened to Athelia. Her cousins who were living in the Howe family homestead on Queen Street received protection from their neighbors, but um, Athelia and her mother and her sister fled to the cemetery. And that's an experience that uh, a lot of Black residents that day had to endure, fleeing their homes with what they could carry or, or just fleeing their homes and, and going to places like Pine Forest Cemetery. I, I'm, I'm curious, was this something that she didn't talk about for a lot of years? I know that a lot of people really didn't talk about it, you know, particularly on, in, in the white community for, for various reasons that we've discussed and will discuss. But um, was it something that she was open about her entire life or was it something that she had to deal with as a trauma and then revisit later in life with her family? I believe my great grandmother dealt with that as a form of trauma until around, I would say, the 1930s. And I say the 30s because at that time or shortly before, she was working as a cook at um, an estate here, uh, Live Oaks. It was the Parsley family home. And my father had fond memories of times when she couldn't come home on the weekend because of her duties but the family would allow the family chauffeur to come to Wilming into town, we called it, to get my father and my uncle Anthony. His name was David Anthony Brown, and we called him Uncle Anthony. And they had 
very, both my father and my uncle Anthony in their 50s and 60s talked about the trips down to the Parsley home and how they were allowed to sort of throw a line in the, it was the sound really, they called it the creek, but the sound and whatever seafood they could catch, whether it was fish or whether they could get some crab or whatever, my great-grandmother was allowed to cook a, a meal for them, and that was considered as their feast. So she talked to them about what happened when they were little boys. And I'm going to say that had to be before his teenage years because he, he talked a lot about how he worked hard in elementary school. He even reported... I hate to say this, but he repeated the fourth grade uh, when he was a little boy because he would have to chop wood and work odd jobs trying to help his mother and his grandmother get extra money. And I say I hate to say that because he was a brilliant mathematician. He went on to teach school and then he went to medical school and became a physician. But um, I think she was talking about it in the 30s at which time he would have been in elementary school. Today would have been his 91st birthday. He was born on the day that the stock market crashed. <laughs> wow. Well, happy birthday to him. What yeah. a legacy to have in his, in his life. Well, thank you for sharing yes. that, that story, because I think that really paints a picture of, of the, again, the varying experiences that were endured by the Black community. And, and again, we're going to talk about um, you know, the black community moving forward after this event and the white community, obviously. Uh, but having that connection, I imagine, makes this story resonate with you only only more deeply. It really does. It really, really does. I'm confident that she endured a lot of emotional pain and fear. And then to work for the Parsley family, knowing their role in the 1898 massacre, probably kept her on edge for many years but she did what she felt she needed to do to survive. And at the appointed time, she began to talk, but only within the families. And again, uh, Walter Parsley was a member of the Secret Nine that we mentioned in our previous episode that was uh, a group that was helping orchestrate the, the coup and, and the violence and the intimidation that happened uh, across town in the days leading up to November 10th and, of course, on the day of the, of the violence. Yeah. David, I want to ask you, uh, speaking of, of that violence, moving into November 11th, was there continued violence Was or was the violence contained to November 10th? I mean, do we keep seeing more of this intimidation of this violence or do we switch completely to the systematic banishments that we've referred to so far? Gosh, Honor, I'm not sure I know the, the specific day that um, the violence in Wilmington stopped. That might be a better question for Luray or, or, or Cynthia, by and large, by the end of the second day, the racial violence, to my knowledge, had, had, had stopped and that there began to be white appeals for law and order, uh, including from Alfred Waddell and other leaders, uh, and a general feeling that it was time to do this, not out of so much a sense of mercy or that enough violence had happened, but that they didn't want to cross a line that might inspire federal intervention uh, in Wilmington, and a sense that what they had set out to do had been accomplished. And I think like any revolutionary regime or any time there's a, a violent coup or overthrow of a government anywhere, the first day after the, what you want to do is begin establishing law and order and the legitimacy of, um, of your new government. 
And that's certainly what happened in, in Wilmington. There were people who uh, sought, there were whites that sought to do more violence, but by and large, uh, as I understand it, that was that was stemmed in favor of what would become a policy for Wilmington and New Hanover County and really for all of North Carolina for the next half century, a policy that as long as African-Americans behaved and respected the new white supremacist order, then extra legal violence would stop. And that as long as there was not resistance, as long as there was not organizing of any kind that in any way threatened white supremacy, then um, then Wilmington and North Carolina would both reach out to African-Americans and extend more help in this terms of social welfare, in terms of funding for, for African-American schools, uh, in terms of even of uh, comparative opposition to lynching. But all that was contingent on, on um, uncontested, the unchallenged rule of white supremacy. Well, and, and for any of you that want to answer, was this the first action of the, the newly installed government in Wilmington that had, had had forced the resignations of those who were in these places of power, like mayor and board of aldermen. Was that the first action to try and restore some type of peace so that they could start moving forward with the policies and these demands that they had issued in the white declaration of independence? Because I imagine that, you know, from, from a logistical standpoint, continued violence is not smart, even if it wasn't smart or right to begin with. So, yes, one of the premises of the white leadership of the coup was that Wilmington had fallen into an abyss prior to them doing they did on November 10th. And they had to do these things in their narrative because they had to rescue the city from unscrupulous black Republican leaders. And so to finish that narrative, if Waddell and his crew did what they had to do, even though it was unpleasant, and this is their narrative, if they had to do what they had to do to take control of the city back from uh, the brink of all the dangerous things that they talked about, then yes, we were in a bad place. We did some bad things yesterday, but was all necessary. And now we're in control and this city is going to be on the straight and narrow path. uh, And we're returning back to safe streets and everyone knows their place and everything is going to be much better now that we took over and made this city ours. So that we taken a city piece is very much what they did. And they had to legitimize their narrative in keeping control. And so making sure that no more violence happened was a piece of that puzzle for them, for Waddell. If I might add, I, I fully agree with Lorraine's uh, explanation on that. And I'd like to add that from a marketing standpoint, I can only imagine, now she's researched it all, but I can only imagine that after publishing this Declaration of Independence, this white declaration, and after, as she said, setting this stage, committing this violence, and then needing to move on with making Wilmington the, quote, fair city that they wanted it to be to attract more white families and give the jobs to and the opportunities so that families could become rooted and flourish here. 
they had to create some semblance of peace and harmony. And so through violence, they wanted to quote unquote, put people in their place, make them quote unquote behave and put up the facade that Wilmington was this wonderful, great place to live. And so I agree totally with her assessment. Now, David, one thing I want to talk to you about is as much as there is this narrative of we take we have taken the city for the good of the city to to bring it back to order. There is still some struggle to basically holster the perpetrators of this, the the red shirts, the the men who are out on the streets in guns because they've been emboldened to follow through with this action. And so I know you've done a lot of research about the red shirts, and I'm curious what happens to this, you know, this paramilitary group, as it's been described, do they continue to roam the streets and, and moving forward? What happens to them, you know, in the days and weeks and months after? It's a good question, Hunter. There is no abatement of systemic violence in that sense. People armed mobbed, stopped prowling the streets of of Wilmington in the days after November 10th and 11th. But what's happening is is, uh, the the beginning of the creation of a white supremacist order. Those are the words that they they use. They they call it the triumph of white supremacists. They have buttons that say that they're uh, white supremacists. They have white supremacy clubs. And so what happens in Wilmington is part of this larger campaign and, and intensely important in Wilmington, but it's happening in every community in North Carolina. It's a creation of a new kind of government, a new a white supremacist order. And as part of that, there are still a, a day the white supremacists still consider that there's a great deal of things to do, some of which are violent and some of which are not. They immediately begin to gear up for a uh, constitutional amendment and the camp and the electoral campaign of 1900, in which to pass a state constitutional amendment that will take away the right of all African American people from voting to remove them from the voting process. As part of that, the red shirts are revitalized. They're organized. They're about uh, thousands arms uh, in uh, holding processions to guard uh, the uh, uh, white supremacist candidate parades of thousands of people uh, of white supremacists across much of North Carolina. That includes lots of red shirts. It also includes uh, an estimated 1,000 what were called white supremacy clubs. It includes of African-American activists and their white sympathizers, not only in New Hanover County, but across the state. And all of that unfolds, that unfolds mainly in the uh, spring and summer of 1900. And in the August 1900 election, the party of white supremacy, which at that time was the Democratic Party, does pass the constitutional amendment. And white supremacists in that election and in the next few elections will occupy every powerful position in North Carolina, the majority of the Supreme Court and the courts, the state legislature, governors, uh, U.S. senators. There will not be a uh, leading North Carolina political figure who opposes uh, white supremacy or all white rule for more than half a century at that point. As as y'all have discussed, they're part of a 
paramilitary kind of Ku Klux Klanish violent arm at that time of the Democratic Party, but they're hardly alone. And uh, waves of violence in North Carolina, large sections of the North Carolina coast where I'm from turn all white at that point, places like Knott's Island and Goose Creek Island and a large swath of Carteret County become all white, most of which remain all white to this day. So it's it's a big thing, um, and and the the violence in that fashion. Um, yes, there's peace and order of a kind, but in a way, the violence becomes institutionalized. It becomes a part of of what North Carolina is at that point. So yeah, I think it's important to note in that sense that because it happened in Wilmington, there was likely a fear that it could happen in another city, that it could happen across North Carolina. So I think you're right that that becomes part of the institutional fabric of North Carolina at the time. And it probably would not have been friendly to, to black residents and, and, and white residents who supported the, the advancement of black people in, in North Carolina at the time. It's important to remember that racial violence, like what happened in Wilmington, happened across North Carolina in 1898 and again in 1900, though most of the incidences are less well known in most cases and and not as many and whites did not kill as many African-Americans. Wilmington was an important it had it, it, because it was the largest city, because it was a center of black political power in North Carolina. Um, the white supremacists targeted Wilmington with special venom. But the central key here from my point of view now, as as we explore what happened in Wilmington in 1898 is to understand how it shaped North Carolina today. And the way it shaped North Carolina today is part of this larger issue of white supremacy and racial violence occurring not only in Wilmington, but across the, but across the state, and then creating an institutional framework. Jim Crow, all white supremacists and all the positions of power, shaping our laws, shaping infrastructure, shaping tax policies, shaping educational policy. It's incredibly important to have converse, to me to have finally to have the story of what happened in Wilmington out there. But now to me, while we continue to teach about that story, we have to also simultaneously pivot and discuss what it means for us today. And it's, it is the central political moment in North Carolina's history, certainly in the last 150 years. So sorry to go on so long, but um, it's a really important, it's North Carolina history, ABC, and we're just beginning to learn it and reconcile and figure out how we became who we are today. Well, but that is the conversation that I want to pivot into because Lorraine, you and I spoke um, about this, this whole aftermath and, and really the central issue of this aftermath as being motivation and setting the framework and the foundation for some huge racial systematic changes in North Carolina. David referenced Jim Crow, um, but you and I spoke about how this was really the start of that separate but equal, that segregation era that takes North Carolina through the first part and the majority, honestly, of the 20th century. So what kind of racially biased, racially motivated, racially focused legislation does 1898 pave the way for? The 1898 election seated a majority of Democratic candidates in the state legislature in Raleigh. 
And these were pro-white supremacy candidates who had been elected to represent all the communities across North Carolina. And that was the 1899 legislative session. And the first things that they do are to reinforce all of the work that they had done to get themselves elected in the first place, which is to minimize African-American involvement in everything from politics to economics and back again. Now, one thing that happened a little bit before 1898 is that the Supreme Court ruled on the Plessy versus Ferguson court case in 1896. And that laid out the basic premise of separate but equal, that African-Americans and whites could have separate facilities as long as they were equal. So North Carolina did not implement any separate but equal legislation until this 1899 legislature comes into office. And that begins a slew of new laws that codifies separation of the races, beginning with separation of the races in train cars, and then it moves into all sorts of other spheres, whether it be drinking fountains or access to the theater, definitely the school system. And um, in Wilmington particularly, it got so insipid or ingrained that blacks and whites had separate Bibles to swear on when they went to court to testify. And um, that begins the separate but equal piece of the puzzle in North Carolina and Wilmington and the white supremacy movement have a role in making all of those things begin to happen. The second big thing, and David referenced this a bit, was disfranchisement, the removal of the right to vote for African-Americans through machinations that were legal or questionably legal, in my opinion. But George Roundtree, who was from Wilmington and was one of the planners of the activities of the Democratic Party leading up to the violence and then through the violence, was elected to the legislature. And he wrote this new clause for voting rights for African-Americans and whites. And it's um, generally just known as a disfranchisement movement, because what it says is that um, there would be literacy tests used to determine whether or not someone was eligible to vote. And there was a clause that was added that said no male who was eligible to vote on or before January 1st, 1867 would lose their right to vote, nor any lineal descendant of such a man. So that means that white men who were eligible to vote in 1867 or their father or their grandfather those white men still had the right to vote. What's also not clearly stated is that the 15th Amendment, which guaranteed the right to vote for African-Americans, wasn't passed until 1869. So blacks were not guaranteed the right to vote in 1867. And that's why that date was chosen as a clause to ensure that white men had the right to vote, even if they couldn't pass the literacy test. And conversely, that meant that Blacks had to be able to pass that literacy test. And that clause was active until 1908. And Charles Brantley Aycock, who was a stump speaker, just like Alfred Moore Waddell was a speaker, 
Uh, ACOC being elected in 1900 is known by uh, most education governor. We have schools named after him all over North Carolina. And one of the things that he did was to ensure that all students had access to education, except he wanted to make sure that the white students could then pass the literacy tests that were created in this amendment to the Constitution of North Carolina. And um, he wanted to make sure that white voters could pass the literacy test in order to vote for the Democratic Party. It just goes back to that white declaration of independence, which stated they wanted to take the right to vote away from black residents. They wanted to take away jobs and give them to white residents. And you see those things being born here in that declaration in Wilmington start to be instituted across the state. So you can see just how powerful controlling Wilmington meant for control of the state. I mean, this being the largest city in the state that meant something, it held power. Now, Cynthia, one thing that, that I think is interesting is, and something that we really, really have to reinforce is, because of 1898, Wilmington stops being a majority black city, and it has never regained that. And because of that, it really suppresses not only the right to vote for African Americans, but it takes away you know, entrepreneurship, it takes away economic opportunity, all of this. I mean, what was the lasting impact of this event on the black community specifically as someone who can see it through their own family tree? That's a great question. And, and if I may, I'd like to answer it in, in two ways. First of all, I think Wilmington did itself a disservice in terms of its potential overall. David spoke to the political impact and we've all talked about politics and what happened, but deeper than that, it was the economics. Wilmington was the port city. It was the point of commerce for the state. Here you have all of your trade, or perhaps not all, but a majority of the trade coming through Wilmington. And so in order to control the economy, the politics and the political control was essential in my mind. Well, after 1898, and as we went into the Jim Crow era, Wilmington really did itself a disservice, I believe, because it failed to recognize the strength of the total and only the desires of a few or of some to have the power. All of that desire caused Wilmington to be stunted, I think, in its growth. Now, Wilmington did grow. Don't, don't get me wrong. But Wilmington had, in my opinion, the potential to be the Charlotte of the state the financial center of the state. It could have possibly been the Triangle Park, the, the Raleigh-Durham area of the state, but definitely the Charlotte area of the state because of the point of commerce here. So that was the first major injury to Wilmington as a whole. Through greed, the perpetrators of this event didn't realize that there was more strength through its diversity. For the Black community, of course, there was the loss of financial ability and prowess might not be the correct word, but the financial strength in the Black community was definitely lost with those who were either killed or who fled. The vehicle for communication in a formal and a professional manner with the loss of the Black press was a second issue. And it was not until I believe the Wilmington Journal was established that you then had another Black press present in Wilmington, 
and it was strong. It was a very uh, civic-minded press that made every effort to ensure that information was flowing through the community. But you also had the Black churches who made an effort to help the community. And I have to speak to St. Stephen simply because I'm more familiar with our history. But in 1914, our church erected under uh, Reverend Dr. Wilson an annex, a four-story annex. And so St. Stephen was able to provide recreational services. Uh, St. Stephen was able to provide educational services. St. Stephen even provided scholarship and resources to those African-Americans who could leave the city and go off to college, whether it was Wilberforce or Allen or Howard University. But for those who could not, such as my great-grandmother, St. Stephen provided domestic training. And some would say, oh, well, domestic training. But for those who couldn't get away or who didn't have, whether it was the means to leave uh, for education or perhaps academically, they could read, they could write, but they were not educationally prepared for college or university, then it was a matter of receiving training so that you could do the best possible job in a trade or in a craft. And so there were many who came through the church for all types of training, whether it was how to properly cook, how to properly provide domestic services, being chauffeurs, etc. And I think some of that led to the establishment of new businesses, such as Black-owned taxi companies in Wilmington that began to spring up. So the church has played a significant role, and I know that St. Stephen was at the core. You also had Black physicians who began to either return to Wilmington or come to Wilmington because of family ties, who did all that they could to ensure health and wellness in the Black community, where that aspect of quality of life was missing. So, Lorraine, what was the economic impact of the 1898 coup? Because we've talked about the communal impact. We've talked about the banishments. We've talked about people leaving town and not coming back. And we've talked about that need to strengthen the Black community once again. But what were the economic impacts in the Black community, in the white community, and for Wilmington as a whole? We studied in the commission's work the economic impact on the African-American community and overall Wilmington. And what we discovered was that prior to the violence of 1898, we had an entrepreneurial element in Wilmington, in the black community. And we had professional people like the attorneys and the doctors and uh, real estate brokers and business owners doing all kinds of goods and services in the town for white and black customers. And then once we get data about post-1898 Wilmington, we see that, first of all, it's impacted by the exodus of African-Americans. Secondly, it's impacted by the philosophy of the white business leaders to hire whites and fire blacks. And then thirdly, we see the other impact, which is that business owners who were black, who had white customers, suddenly lost that white customer base because white shoppers were keeping their white dollars with white business owners. 
And that contracted the economy for black entrepreneurs who moved out of the white central business district and into the black community. And conversely, we see more and more black workers turning into day laborers who are making less per day than they were making before the violence. And when you're a black grocer in a black community and your customers are having fewer dollars in their pockets, your business isn't going to prosper as well as it would have otherwise. So we do see a contraction of the economy and a reduction in the overall ability of the African-American community to have purchasing power for goods and services and housing and things like that. So there is a clear line of an economic decline for the Black community. And that moved into the 20th century as we move past 1900 and into the 19-teens. Cynthia, you've spoken to the, the support on the ground in Wilmington for the Black community. Lorraine, we've talked about some of the legislation that was put in place after the riot. And so, David, I, I wanted to ask something. You mentioned that the real important part of this is what happened after and how it changed not only Wilmington, but also the state of North Carolina. And one thing that we don't see for years after 1898 is Black representation in the state government, in the representatives sent to um, to Congress. And so I'm curious, how long does it take for Black residents to be able to, again, have a foothold in politics in that way? Well, I think it's all important, Hunter. What happened in 1898 and 1900, and then it, all, all those waves of kind of what happened after, it, it, it was all important and tragic and, and, and still matters. In 1902... Even the other party, the, at that time, the state's Republican Party, bans African-Americans. And North Carolina, as far as who is elected to office and who, what party will be in power, becomes a uh, one-party state, the Democratic Party, for more than 60 years. And um, during that time, um, there's almost no African-American representation uh, at any local county, municipal, or federal office in North, in North Carolina. That begins to be whittled away in the late 40s and early 50s in a small way. Um, you start to get some uh, school, African-American school board members, uh, maybe a town councilman or, or, or two, but it's not really until the, uh, the African-American civil rights struggle uh, begins to sweep across North Carolina. Uh, in the mid, late 60s and in the 70s that you start to get a significant number of African-Americans in office again. One thing that I have really been interested in and I wanted to do more research, and I know that I think a few of you have, is these black residents and, and white supporters of those residents, white residents that were either banished from town or fled, you know, some did not return. A good portion did not return. Did they settle elsewhere together? I've heard that there's been people who have found each other or, or went with each other to other cities and, and were vocal about being refugees of Wilmington. George White was a senator from North Carolina, and he was African-American, and his term was up in 1899. But he set up and worked with people in um, Cape May, New Jersey, to set up an enclave for 
refugees of Wilmington specifically. And when you look at the census for 1900 and 1910, you see large groups of people who were born in North Carolina who have last names very similar to those of people who were from Wilmington. So we know that they moved in unison to some areas such as New Jersey, uh, New York. Yes, there was a group of people from New York who moved up there and from Wilmington who moved to New York. And um, many of them worked at Sprunt's Cotton Compress. And Sprunt sent envoys from Wilmington up to New York asking his former employees to come back to Wilmington and that he would guarantee their safety if they did because he needed those skilled workers back on his docks doing what they did best for him. So we have incidences of groups moving together because it's a safer thing to do and you knew who you were with and knew who you could count on when you're going to a place where you have no ties, no economic parachute and um, safety mechanisms in place. Group mentality and just familiarity with people that you know from your town who experienced something that you did, I imagine is vitally important uh, in in what is a tumultuous time for for these residents. One thing I want to talk about as we kind of uh, start moving through the 20th century is Earlier this year, the Wilmington City Council removed two Confederate statues that were put up in Wilmington by the Daughters of the Confederacy as the at the turn of the century. Uh, the first one was the George Davis statue at Third and Market Streets, and that was put up in 1911. And then you also have a Confederate memorial statue that's put up in 1924 at Third and Dock Streets. And they took them down as this country goes through 2020 and grapples with its history. And that is something that we've seen across the country, all over the South. And, and people who supported the removal of these statues claimed that they were used as forms of intimidation for the black community, that they were put up to show that there was still a presence for not necessarily the Confederacy as it was during the war, but the mentalities and the ideologies of the Confederacy. And I'm curious, through research, have we found that that is the case, that statues like this were put up to intimidate the Black community, to warn people of coming back to town? Because that has been a real charge against these statues for years. May I May I say something on that? Absolutely. Go for it. I can't tell you statistically based on any survey of folks. Uh, But I will say this, my mother's eldest sister uh, who passed away a few years ago, held that exact thought, that concept in her heart for years. She was born here in Wilmington, but she lived away for a number of years in the 50s, the 60s, yes, with her husband, who was a construction superintendent. And she returned to Wilmington, very modest individual in terms of her means. But whenever I would take her into what we call downtown, uh, to the bank or to do any type of shopping downtown, she always would look at uh, the Davis statue. I believe that was the one that pointed out. And she always said that was placed there to remind Black folk that you're to stay South and you're to stay in your place. And we used to laugh at her and we used to say, you know, Aunt Geraldine, what are you, 
come on. And, and then we would talk about the history behind Confederate statues as we became older. And we realized that although she would say it with a degree of sarcasm, there was something inherent in her that made her feel that that's what it represented. And it was like a subliminal Now, I don't think that all felt that way. I think that many resented the statutes, but I do believe that some felt that it was a subliminal message to remind people of color of their place. And I, when you were talking, I, I had this sort of fond, sort of sad memory of when my aunt would always say that when I would drive her downtown to the bank. So yes, it had that effect. Now, some historians may feel, and I've heard the argument that it's quote, our heritage. And as a country, it is a part of our history, but to place subliminal messages like these statues here, there and everywhere for public viewing does have an impact, I believe. When it's a darker side of history, my belief is that a museum or a place for that sort of thing to be studied, uh, an educational institution is better than a public placement because the impact psychologically is not going to be great for everyone that drives by that statute every day. Just my thoughts though. I haven't studied these monuments deeply. I've paid attention to the movements and listened to the arguments, but the just like the white supremacy movement of 1898, was very blatant in what it did and was proud and wrote speeches in support of their movement. And those speeches were then published verbatim in the newspapers. Many times when these monuments were dedicated, that happened again, where the speeches that were given at the dedication of the monuments were fully published in the newspapers. And reading those speeches would give you a clear indication of why that monument was being put, where it was being put, when it was being put. And many times there are undertones in the few speeches I've read of this white supremacy reinforcement concept that we've been talking about and the intimidation tool. But, you know, each monument is different and the reasons for each monument could be different. So I would encourage people to do their own research, not only on the monuments, but on why those monuments were put there and read those speeches that are in the newspapers that accompanied the opening of those monuments. And, and, and I should say, true, we can't kind of charge, and I would say that we can't kind of charge the United Daughters of the Confederacy with an intention that we don't know for sure. But as a group, they were to further the memory and hold on to the memory of the Confederacy which was something that was obviously going to have a different meaning for the black residents in town as they kind of look to the future. You know, we can't speak to their intention, but as Cynthia said, she can speak to what seeing those statues meant to her family. And again, for, for other families of all races, they're going to mean something different. But in this particular town, in the aftermath of what happened on that specific day in 1898, it obviously is going to hold a specific resonance. The Wilmington coup of 1898 predates several other similar events that were committed against African-American communities in the United States, uh, two of which were 
the Atlanta uh, riot in 1906, and then you have the Tulsa massacre in 1921. Lorraine, you told me that there was actually people who conversed between Wilmington and, and the perpetrators of those massacres that almost used Wilmington as a blueprint for what could happen elsewhere. In, in what way do you mean a blueprint? Particularly with Atlanta, the white leadership in Atlanta visited Wilmington, had Wilmingtonians visit Atlanta, and they gave them a tutorial on how to have murder in the streets and how to take control of a city economically, socially, and politically. And um, the folks in Atlanta even outright said, if we have to do what they did in Wilmington, we will. And they kind of did in the 1905-1906 time period with the Atlanta riot. And um, then Wilmington becomes a blueprint of how to have machinations behind the scenes, planning things, getting stuff all laid out, paying attention to the legal ramifications of what they did and how uh, implementing that work with a whole other group of people not really knowing that there was planning happening behind the scenes ahead of time. And um, so, yes, Atlanta is is a clear descendant of what happened in Wilmington in 98. And um, Tulsa and Greenwood and all these other violent uprisings of whites against Blacks in this period and into the early 20th century all have elements of the same sorts of activities that you saw in Wilmington. And Wilmington wasn't the first instance of what happened with whites invading black neighborhoods, but it certainly was one that got more attention and became a touch point moving forward. Now, one thing that has been a hallmark of this story is how over the years, especially in those first immediate years after uh, the coup in 1898, is how it was hidden from the community. There were generations that unless they had a personal connection like Cynthia and a family member who lived through it and was willing to talk about it, most people did not know it even happened. And I'm curious how this was done. What ways did the leadership that was in Wilmington. And again, let's not charge every white person in Wilmington with being part of that, because that's not what this was. It was a select few who were seeing an opportunity to exert their race over another race, and they took it. But that did not represent everyone. But how did those people who were in charge, who orchestrated this, who supported this, how did they work to hide the history of 1898? I don't think they did, Hunter. Uh, what happened in 1898 would eventually be forgotten, but um, the perpetrators of the racial massacre were, were very proud of what they had done. And the politicians who were behind the larger white supremacy campaigns that swept North Carolina in 1898 and 1900, they were very proud of what they had done. They wrote about it extensively. They granted interviews to newspapers. You almost didn't have a political future in North Carolina if you couldn't say that you were somehow involved in the white supremacy campaign. And that was definitely true in Wilmington and New Hanover County. Six former and future governors you know, were, were of North Carolina were part of the campaign. They bragged about it in textbooks. Preachers wrote about it in memoirs. And it was, it was not something that they, you know, the News and Observer headline right after 
the massacre, you know, and the election, white supremacy triumphant, page one. Time does strange things, though. And over the generations, uh, the attitude and, and the way that the, the memory of what happened down there was, was silenced. In my middle school uh, library, when I was a child growing up in eastern North Carolina, there was still a book featured the, the 10 greatest North Carolinians. It was called something like the 10 greatest North Carolinians ever. And three of them were leaders of the white supremacist campaign, along with the Wright brothers and Virginia Dare and that sort of thing. Uh, so by then, the textbooks were our textbooks that I learned from were beginning to were still referring to what happened in Wilmington as sort of an unfortunate but necessary event. But they were giving it very little uh, space. It was only you know, two short paragraphs uh, in my history book when I was in school in eastern North Carolina. But for half a century, that was not the case. And, and it, it was something that was well known and only forgotten in you know, more recent generations. It's not necessarily that it was hidden. As you said, it, it was it was that over time it became something that people just didn't talk about. But I also think it is important to note that access to information about this over time, as people started to not talk about it as much, or it might not be in textbooks in, in a large formative sense. Now, today, we have access to old newspapers that have those headlines. But, you know, people might not have had access to some of these uh, films and stuff like that. So I think that, you know, for some people, you're correct. There was a pride in what happened in Wilmington for the people who perpetrated it. They wanted to speak openly about it. They celebrated it. They considered themselves victorious in the aftermath. But as you move through generations, and I, I think Cynthia can speak to this, and I know she has before, there just wasn't an access to the information to, to be informed about what it meant and what it truly meant moving forward. And Hunter, I, I would like to speak to that briefly. You are absolutely correct. And, and David's correct on this also. It was discussed in certain circles. And if it was in textbooks, there was a small or a brief mention of it. However, access as people grew older or people didn't come back or, or whatever, access to solid documentation was not there. And I can attest to that because in the early, it would have been the early 1970s, very early, a friend of mine and I visited the public library when it was located in the WLI building here in Wilmington. And we asked, because of the talk, it, there was more talk about what happened here in 1898 in my family at that time, but not much. And let me put a footnote here. My mother's family was not from Wilmington. Her father came out of the Rocky Mountain area. The railroad brought him here. And uh, his, his uh, wife, my grandmother, came out of Sampson County. And so there was something about the way they raised their children, my mother, her sisters, and her brother, that uh, was a little different. They didn't have this fear in them about history and they felt they needed to be all that they could be and go forth in life. Well, my father was beginning to talk about it a little to me then. And so my girlfriend and I just went traipsing along to the public library. It was around the time of the Wilmington 10 era. 
and we asked. And I'm not sure if the librarian was uncomfortable because of the environment here in Wilmington and wondering why these two young African-American girls were coming in asking about 1898, but she flat out refused us. Now, I remember that as though it happened yesterday. And my girlfriend tugged at me and said, let's go, we're gonna get in trouble. And you know, getting in trouble was something you didn't wanna have happen. And so I left the library that day vowing to myself that I would get to the root of everything I remembered about my grandma Thalia, the few things my father was beginning to talk with me about. And so access was not there. Even with the, uh, the copy of the 1898 November, uh, I believe it's the November 10th copy of the Wilmington newspaper, it's the 10th or the 14th, might be the 14th. But the church has an original that I was shocked to know existed. And I didn't learn of this until the 19, maybe early 1990s, before I returned to Wilmington. A friend that I grew up with called me. We were all home for the Christmas holidays. She said, guess what I found? I was going through some things in my grandmother's attic and I collect old picture frames. She was home from New Jersey. She's actually the director of the health center on North 4th Street. And she said, I opened the back of the frame to get the newspaper out, to, to get the padding out is what she said. And I found a newspaper that was holding the picture in place. And lo and behold, she opened it up and she said, isn't this what you were trying to find out about when we were all in high school? And I said, yeah. And she said, my mom says you've really been digging into history. Well, they ultimately had it framed. You could read it both sides. I took it up to a friend. I don't even know if he's still there. Colleague, Jerry Cotton, who was at Wilson Library up at Carolina. And he copied frames for me to be able to read it without disturbing it in its framing. And uh, Althea's mother donated that to the church as a part of our archives. So yes, access was a problem. It was an issue for the younger generation who really wanted to come up to snuff on what had happened, not until recent years. Now, David, this I think you can speak to a little bit in what you were talking about has been your real focus um, after writing your book and, and, and transitioning to really the aftermath and seeing how this had long reaching effects for Wilmington. We're now in a, in a presidential election year. Uh, we're recording this in the days before the election. Our listeners will hear it after it. But one thing that we've seen is this struggle with, you know, efforts of voter suppression or, or attempts to to not uh, identify things as voter suppression. And I'm curious, 122 years later, are, is there still forms of intimidation happening that you could see clearly back in 1898 that are happening now in 2020? Uh, good question, Hunter. To me, one of, if, if not the central, one of those vital things that came out of 1898 in Wilmington was this sense of sort of tearing black and white apart from one another. Yes, it was a, about black oppression, but in some ways more fundamentally, it was about putting a wall up between black and white so that black and whites could not have political coalition and, and could not challenge the powers that be. And I do feel that we still suffer from that rending apart, that we've never fully recovered. 
and that that has left us vulnerable to racial appeals and to, you know, we're not, we're still what James Baldwin called these yet to be United States and do see efforts at voter suppression and other kinds of intimidation, other ways of, of working to keep African-Americans and other people of color from voting, as well as young people uh, in many cases, uh, poor people. Um, I do see a lot of continuity between the way of thinking about who who should run our society, who should run our government in 18, that we saw in 1898 and that we see that we see now. Since we announced this series just a few days ago at the time of this recording, we've had a lot of people send me emails post comments on social media about how they did not think that the podcast was going to tell this story right, that it was not going to serve one community or it was not going to serve the other. And it's something that I've been thinking about as I was putting this show together about how there's still such a distrust about this story and about this history, even though there's been so much research and scholarship. And I'll just tell you that, you know, that they've questioned why I call the perpetrators of the 1898 coup white supremacists, even though they called themselves white supremacists. And they've wondered if I would tell about black violence against the white community and against white women and, and how that gets left out of the story. And I think it shows that 122 years later, there's still a part of our community that doesn't buy into this story as it unfolded. And there is still a part of this community that does not believe that it happened as it did. And I know that all of you have probably faced the same backlash. You've heard the same comments from people when speaking about this. And I'm curious, what do you say to the people who don't believe it happened as it did or that telling this story is somehow someone called it blackwashing our history? What do you tell people when you hear these, these comments to your work and, and your research and, and the, the, the amount of time that you've put into looking at, at what the true story of 1898 was? I've been researching and writing about 1898 since 2003, four era. And um, I've had lots of detractors and supporters across the many years. And my entire history career has been one of giving a voice to people who have not had a voice in any other way in history. And the events leading up to the day of and then the aftermath of November 10th is a clear historical tool in showing how one group's voice was minimized in a major event. And so that has always been my goal is to give a voice to that part of the community, which in this instance is the African-American community who didn't have a clear narrative out there about this pivotal event in our history. And the, the white side of the story has always pretty much been known that we knew there were white leaders who planned things. We knew that there was violence in the streets. And we knew that the coup d'etat happened. The story around those things was spun by the whites who perpetrated all of the bits that we've been talking about for the last three episodes. And so I sought to tell the story of the African-Americans who were the victims of all of this. And 
It's not blackwashing. It's not whitewashing. It is history. And we have to understand our history if we are going to move forward and make sure that that sort of thing doesn't happen again. And to deny that people did bad things to other people all in the name of acquiring power, maintaining power, is doing us all a disservice because we're all humans and there's only one race and that's to get to the end of a good life. And so, you know, people have opinions. We're all human. If you want to deny it, that's your right as an American citizen, but history is history and we just need to understand it. And that's my perspective. And and to Lorraine's comments, I'm going to say amen as we say in church. But let me say to you, I, so I'm, Goodness gracious. Yes, we're all human and we all have differing opinions. But at the end of the day, as Lorraine stated, we just want to go through this journey called life and and look and say, you know, we've lived it as well as possible. But we've also been as good as possible as we could be in terms of our kindness, in terms of our understanding in terms of our relationships with one another so that we're leaving this place better for our children, our grandchildren, our neighbors' children, whomever, who are going to come along after us. I I tend to look at these things from a spiritual perspective as well as a scientific perspective, although I'm the, the one out of three siblings who didn't pursue science or medicine. But when I think about it, you know, We're on this planet with just abundant resources, but because of our human nature, we have rained down injury one upon the other, and we've let emotion get in the way instead of fact leading the way. When we allow the facts to lead the way, we're able to secure a better future make better decisions and choices in life. And also we're able to look ourselves in the mirror and accept the truth for what it is, whether it's good, bad, or ugly. And when any one of us resists the truth, which history should bring forth the truth, then we're unable, in my opinion, to truly self-assess and be better citizens, better stewards. And we injure the next generation. It's unfortunate that human nature will sometimes get in the way of history, but it is history. It is the truth. And unless we can look in the mirror and accept it and be big enough to say, some of this doesn't look good. You see, in my mind, it comes down to being strong enough morally and spiritually to say, some of this doesn't look good. I don't want it to happen again because I want things to be better for the next generation. So I have to I have to piggyback on to Lorraine's comments and second it all. And those are my further thoughts on that. Amen. 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 <laughs> to both Lorraine and Cynthia's words. All I'll say is that to echo Cynthia is that this is our history. I love North Carolina. I love Eastern North Carolina. I've devoted my life to writing about all of its people and to its strengths and you know, it's the genius of its people, the beauty of, of us. 1898 is a really, really big thing, and it happened. And it, it, it was a horrible 
uh, it was the worst part of ourselves, and it has shaped us down to this day. I'm feeling very optimistic these days <laughs> because people are talking about that past. Young people, particularly the, the, young, the young people have been out in the streets since George Floyd's murder, in particularly including uh, my children. They're taking this past and loving North Carolina and saying, okay, now we want to go out and, and make North Carolina better. We want to make America better. We want to move past the kind of divisions that we have separated us as a people in the past. We want to get past it. And a lot of that goes back to 1898 and 1900, if, if you live in North Carolina. And so by, to me, by, by looking at, at this history in an in a honest way, and just even if it's hard, even if it's difficult, even if it involves your family members, which in my case it does, this, as both Cynthia and Lorraine just said, is, is a, this is something for the next generation so that our children and our grandchildren don't have to grow up or can grow up in a better world. All very incredible and fine points. And I want to wrap up this episode and I want to wrap up our uh, Unearthing 1898 series with one final question that all of you can answer or, or if one of you would like to, to take it. I am curious, as people who have studied as people who have heard the stories of 1898 through their families and have worked to put the history of this particular moment in Wilmington, this particular moment in North Carolina, and this particular moment in American history into context and into books and in front of people. I'm curious what you think the ultimate legacy of 1898 is. And it might be something that we're still grappling with and understanding. And I know that that's a lofty question, but is it Wilmington's defining moment? And I think, more importantly, looking towards the future, does it have to be? That's a tough question, Hunter. Um, I know, but we had to end this on something that was a good, tough question to make people want to look towards the future. I think it is currently Wilmington's defining moment. But if we all work together to overcome what it meant economically, socially, with racial justice and all of those other things that we've talked about, it doesn't have to be in the future. And that, you know, we've got other really interesting things that have happened in Wilmington's history that we need to remember. And Wilmington's role in World War II and building all of those awesome liberty ships is something that we need to see as important to Wilmington's history. But, you know, into the 70s, late 60s, early 70s with the Wilmington 10, there was a distinct line between Wilmington 10 and 1898. And the town has to come to grips with what happened. No more denying it, no more ignoring it. And it is something that happened in this town. It was a horrible thing. And many people suffered. Let's find a way to have some closure and seek to make sure that the descendants of 1898 in Wilmington, whether they be white or black, can find a new path forward together. And I'm not a Wilmingtonian. I have studied Wilmington from living in Raleigh. And so 
that's me on the outside looking in. And I don't, I don't live there every day. And I don't have the lived experiences of, of everyday life in that town. But I've certainly come to know and love a whole lot of people in that town. And so that's my perspective. Now, Cynthia is going to have a different one. David's going to have a different one. You're going to have a different one, Hunter. So that's my part. I think you can have different kinds of role models. And you can have different kinds of kind of moments in the past that matter to us. And that you'd rather have a good role model, someone to pattern your life after and, and build on strengths and goodness and kindness. But I also think that we can learn from bad role models. And in a way, I, I sort of feel like maybe Wilmington, what happened in 1898 is, is a bit like that bad role model, that it is the pivotal event in Wilmington's history up to now. But it, it wouldn't be a tragedy if it stayed that way, if, if what we, all of us learn from it is sort of how not to be, how, how to... How to love, I mean, I don't know another way to say it, except sort of in spiritual terms, how to love one another, how to be good to one another, how to look out for one another, how to cross barriers, how not to be afraid to grow close to other people, how to build a democracy that reaches out to everybody. What happened in Wilmington in 1898 is not just sort of the pivotal moment in the city's history. In, in a way, it's the most pivotal moment in North Carolina's history. But I hope that will lead us to be better, to grow beyond it, and, and you know, to lean, lean toward the good and the light. And I'd like to just add that I fully agree with both Lorraine and with David. What happened in Wilmington was a pivotal moment in time for the city, for its residents, and for the state of North Carolina. It altered the trajectory on what Wilmington could have become. And those who orchestrated the violence may have felt that they put Wilmington on a better trajectory. But at the end of the day, I'm a person who believes that we should work together for the good of all. And that while we may be different, we should learn how to work together and capitalize on one another's strengths rather than taking the approach that I'm better than you or you're better than me and I have to move you out of the way if I don't agree with you or if I don't see things from the same vein. My father used to say to me and my brother and sister that when you have a, a difficult situation, a problem, et cetera, such as this, it's like a wound that you may put some salve or cream or ointment on and band-aid it. But if you don't first disinfect that wound and understand what's there and what bacteria could be growing from it, maybe the skin will come back and you'll have some healing, but you'll have a scab and you'll have an unsightly spot on your skin. And so it's always best to clean that wound, understand what's there, and then let it heal. And after it healed, avoid what caused that wound in the beginning. And so that's the, his, that's the lesson that history can teach us. We can learn from our mistakes. We should never feel that we're too big to learn from our mistakes. I am hopeful that revealing history, talking about it, teaching it will not be viewed as a, a way of attacking one or the other, but instead revealing the truth. I had a professor out at UCLA once, Al Osborne, who said, 
it's like taking the kimono off and then you see what's really there. And I, I, I really believe that we must embrace our history in order to go forward. And I'll do something that I don't normally do. I'll answer my own question because all of you have been listening to my voice on this podcast for more than two years now. And when I went into 1898, researching it, trying to find the best guests for it, I was sure that this is going to be the most important story we tell on the show. And I completely still agree with that. But I will say that I think that doing this series and talking to these guests and researching this, it has been such an enriching process, despite the tragedy and the horrible nature of our topic. But it's also made me so glad and so excited about the other stories we've showed on the show, because it shows that Wilmington can be so much more than just 1898. 1898 is such an important story. It says so much about our time and so much about what we can do to be kind to one another and just be considerate of one another. But it also shows that Wilmington is so much more than its mistakes. And it's so much more than its darkest chapters. And this is Wilmington's darkest chapter. But if you've taken anything from this series, I hope that you take away that this does not have to be the one story that you tell your kids about living in Wilmington or loving Wilmington or anything like that. 1898 is such a vital story, but it's not the only story. And hopefully it will never be something that we see again in Wilmington. And again, like all of our guests, I think I'm, I'm hopeful for that as well, having told these stories over the past couple of years. And so I want to thank all of you for sticking with us through 1898. I want to thank all of our guests this episode and before. Cynthia, thank you so much for telling us about your family. David, thank you so much for coming in and talking about your research and everything you've done about this story. And Lorraine, thank you for being on for all three episodes. You have been an incredible asset to helping me wrap my own head around this story before helping bring it to our listeners. And I am eternally grateful. So thank you all so much for being a part of Unearthing 1898. You're welcome. You're welcome. Lovely to visit with you all. You're welcome. Take care, everyone. Thank you. You as well. Bye-bye. That's it for the final episode of Unearthing 1898. Thank you so much for joining me for this series. And a big thank you to our guests, Lorraine Umfleet, Cynthia Brown, and David Sazelski, and to all of our guests who have appeared across our episodes. Cape Fear Unearthed will be back soon with the next chapter from our local history book. Until then... I would encourage everyone to do their own research into 1898. Find one of the books we mentioned or go watch Wilmington on Fire and learn more so that you can be better educated about this city's history. And please make sure that you're a member of our Facebook group where listeners can ask questions about our episodes and share their own memories of the region's history. In that group, I post extra content for each of our episodes and all of my coverage of local history for the Star News. You can find that group by searching Cape Fear Unearthed on Facebook. If you have episode ideas or questions about the show, you can also email me directly at capefearunearthed at gmail.com. And don't forget to sign up for the Cape Fear Unearthed newsletter 
which goes out every week. Sign up for that newsletter at starnewsonline.com newsletters. As always, you can get a list of all the books, articles, and resources used in researching this podcast in the show notes of each episode. Cape Fear Unearthed was written, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. By me, Hunter Ingram. You can find more of my work at starnewsonline.com or you can follow me on Twitter at Hunter underscore Wesley. Additional editing for the show is done by Adam Fish. This podcast is made possible by listeners and readers like you. Support local journalism and Cape Fear Unearthed by subscribing to the Star News today at starnewsonline.com slash subscribe. And while you're subscribing to things, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you get the show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a review, which will help more people find Cape Fear Unearthed. Until our next episode... Get out and explore the Cape Fear region on your own. You never know what you might unearth.